2 Chronicles chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. Um, it's on page 310 in the older edition of the Bible. I think it's 84 edition or page 440 in the newer edition. The priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jaduthan and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeters and singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals and other instruments, they raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned round and blessed them. Then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father David. For he said, Since the day I brought my people out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built for my name to be there, nor have I chosen anyone to be the leader over my people Israel. But now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there, and I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son, who is your own flesh and blood. He is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now sit on the throne of Israel. Just as the Lord promised, and I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have placed the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people of Israel. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now he had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide and three cubits high and had placed it in the centre of the outer court. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. He said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father, with your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. 
Now, Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, promises you made to him when you said, You shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me according to my law, as you have done. And now, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David come true. But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open towards this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays towards his, this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When a man wrongs his neighbour and is required to take an oath, and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing down on his own head what he has done. Declare the innocent not guilty, and so establish his innocence. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and confess your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave them and their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land that you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land, or blight or mildew, locust or grasshoppers, or when enemies besiege them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or a plea is made by any of your people Israel, each one aware of his affliction and pains and spreading out his hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart, for you alone know the hearts of men, so that they will fear you and walk in your ways all the time they live in the land that you gave our fathers. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house that I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you towards this city you have chosen, and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea 
and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy, who takes them captive to a land far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly, and if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and pray towards the land that you gave their fathers, towards the city you have chosen and towards the temple that I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God... May your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now rise, O Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David, your servant. When Solomon finished praying, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, his love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. By your spirit now, enable us and our children to concentrate that uh, our lives and our minds and our lives would be changed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. A ball uh, is sunk into a net and in an instant... Uh, many millions of people on the other side of the planet uh, break out into euphoria and some new gods are, are made. Uh, the greatest glory that our world could give to anyone at this point in time would be victory in the Football World Cup. Uh, to millions of people, it's, it's like a religion uh, from which they uh, derive their sense of purpose and, and meaning in life. Uh, the result of the uh, final match gives evidence of that. Uh, for uh, to many people, the result will cause uh, very deep uh, sadness and, 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 and grief and mourning. And yet for others, uh, it will cause euphoria and uh, very great uncontainable jubilation. Uh, whichever team wins, uh, that team will be uh, glorified uh, with godlike status in their own country or in countries which just happen to hate the uh, team that they, were, that they beat on the finals. Uh, in 2014, when the German team uh, beat Argentina... 1-0 uh, uh, in extra time, as it usually happens. 
the, uh, some of the other South American teams were just jubilant because they hated uh, Argentina. And they did so before a global audience of about an estimated 1.03 billion people, which means that 14% uh, of all humanity were tuned into the game. And they were idols, they were the glory of all of Germany. True glory is not like that. Uh, true glory is not the, just the glory of a moment, determined by a ball sinking into a net. Uh, true glory is far more profound in its nature and has lasting effect. The psalmist wrote that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Uh, it's the kind of glory which may not cause us to become euphoric, uh, like when our team wins, like how you might have felt the other night when the Blues won the, the uh, State of Origin. But the unfathomable greatness of the universe gives us cosmic cause to acknowledge God's glory and to give our lives over to worshipping him. Uh, we don't, uh, however, need only to look to the heavens to see the glory of God uh, or, for that matter, to the uh, world around us, the earth beneath our feet. For because God is God and he is unfathomable for us and God is God and we are not God, uh, we are humans, God has revealed his glory to us in, in somewhat more direct and uh, very tangible ways so that we can come to know him uh, uh, personally, one-on-one uh, -on -one with God, if you like. Now, for ancient Israel, that personal manifestation of God's glory was, was uh, uh, the, the pinnacle of it was found in, in the temple. There are few passages in the Bible which, where we see this as clearly as we do in our passage today. If you'd like to have your Bibles open at 2 Chronicles uh, chapters 5 and 6. Because in 2 Chronicles 5 and 6, the temple which Solomon had built uh, is now filled with the glory of God. Now, we're not just talking here about the glorious... Um, appearance of the, the structure of the building with all of its gold and its fine furnishings and with its, um, its grandeur, we're talking here about a supernatural glory which now fills, at this time, uh, the temple. The Jews uh, later on came to refer to this uh, physical manifestation of the glory of God as the Shekinah glory. It's not a term that you find in the Bible. It's a Hebrew term, but it's a term which uh, means uh, that which dwells. Uh, that is, the, the dwelling of the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. And so we, we see it here because in chapter 5, verses 11 and following, the, the temple has now been built. The Ark of the Covenant has now been set in place in the Holy of Holies. The singers, accompanied by the musicians, sung praise to God. 
Uh, those simple lyrics in verse 13, he is good, his love endures forever. And then we're told in verse 14, if you care to, to look at this, that uh, Solomon, had, he had erected a, um, a platform where he could stand in front of the whole of the assembly. And in verse 14, he, he, he prays saying, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way, you have kept your promise to your servant David my father, with your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. And then um, if you go back to chapter 5 verse 13, which is actually where I should have been reading from, big mistake there, uh, chapter 5 verse 13, after they sung uh, He is good, His love endures forever, it says, Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Now that's what I wanted to draw your attention to, the cloud which filled the temple. Did you note that the, uh, the priests had to evacuate because of the cloud filling the temple? This is not the first time that this has happened um, because remember under Moses that God led the people of Israel through the wilderness uh, in the day through a cloud and uh, on Mount Sinai, uh, God revealed himself to Moses in the thickness of a, uh, of a very dark cloud. In the Bible, uh, clouds are rich in symbolism. They symbolise both majesty and mystery. And so it's quite apt that God reveals himself uh, in that way. Now, uh, the fact that the priests evacuated the temple... It actually kind of shows us that it's not their temple, is it? It's actually the dwelling place of God. It's God's temple. Some people say that the reason that God manifested himself at this time uh, was connected with the, the music and the singers. Uh, one commentator I, re- I read uh, wrote that we become aware of God's presence through the music ministry. I I want to take a different view uh, to that uh, because as important as uh, music and singing is and was then, this was not a subjective uh, feeling about God's presence or it was not a conjuring up of God's presence by the use of music. This was an actual manifestation of God and the connection here is not uh, so much with the music and the singers, the connection is with the promises of God, which have now been fulfilled. And so in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. That's a promise that he made to Moses. Uh, I've built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So we shouldn't be surprised that a, a, a dark cloud fills the temple. Uh, But there is more to it in terms of the promises because in verses 3 through to 17, Solomon recounts the two promises that God made to David that we've been talking about in this series. And do you remember what they are? 
Uh, well, there's, there is a good summary of them in verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, uh, David say, uh, Solomon says, The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple of the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have placed the ark in which the covenant of the Lord that he made uh, with, the, with the people of Israel. So the two big um, promises are, promise number one, that a son of David, an heir of David, would, uh, would be king. Uh, and secondly, that this heir would build a temple as a dwelling place for God. And so this has now been fulfilled. Uh, and so in Solomon then prays in verse 14, uh, the prayer that I read to you earlier on mistakenly, he prays, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled as it is today. And so having given thanks for promises fulfilled, in verse 18 he now asks the question, but will God really dwell on earth with humans, with people? Now, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Because the answer that he's expecting is, is no. I mean, you cannot contain the uncontainable God. No building can do that. And so what follows in Solomon's lengthy prayer now helps us to understand the meaning of the temple. How so? Well, let's look at a sample of the prayer, shall we? Because having asked that question about will God really dwell in the temple, Solomon continues in verse 19, uh, saying, uh, uh, Yet give attention uh, to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be opened toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, what does he ask? Forgive. Forgive. Now, uh, in the remainder of the prayer, right through to verse 42, Solomon brings before God a number of case situations where God's people would have cause to pray. Uh, so in verses 22 to 23, when they have wronged their neighbour and they need forgiveness, go to the temple and pray, or pray towards the temple. Or in verse 24 to 25, when they have, Israel has sinned and been defeated by their enemy, or when sin has caused uh, drought and plague, or when they're about to go to war, or even in verse 32, when a non-Israelite, when a Gentile who, who acknowledges the God of Israel comes with his or her requests for help, in all of these circumstances, there is a common 
thread. There is a refrain in Solomon's prayer. And that is, when someone even prays towards this place, you don't even have to be there, but towards... Remember Daniel? Remember Daniel when he dwelt in Babylon in exile and they made it illegal to pray to the God of Israel. And what did Daniel do? He went into his house, went upstairs, went to the room where the windows opened up towards Jerusalem and prayed. He prayed towards the city of Jerusalem because of the temple. And Solomon says when they pray towards this place, he asks that God would hear their prayers from God's dwelling place. From heaven. That is, the temple is the symbolic focal point of God's relationship with his people. Uh, God is dwelling in heaven. Daniel is dwelling in Babylon. But it's the focal point for that relationship and the, the confirmation of that relationship, the tangible expression of that relationship is in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Solomon uh, also describes it as a temple for God's name. That's repeated throughout his prayer, which means that they can have, could pray to God with confidence in the same way that we pray to God because of the name of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. And I think that there's a connection there. But there is more, because in verses 22 to 24, when there is a dispute between two people, that dispute can be brought to the temple of the Lord, who will punish the guilty and will vindicate the innocent. Because God is Israel's ruler. God is Israel's judge. And so what we see there is that the temple symbolises both the, the rule of God, the kingship of God, and it also symbolises the character of God being the God of heaven, the God of the universe who listens to the prayers of his people, who judges sin and who forgives the penitent, who forgives the sinner who repents. And now the glory of God in the cloud is the confirmation of all of that. But God is always glorious. At most, the vast majority of the time, the cloud was not in the temple. It doesn't make any God any less glorious. God is glorious whether there is a cloud there or not because the glory of God is manifest in his character. His character. That is, the, his character of righteousness, of justice, of mercy, of love, of forgiveness. Now, I wonder what is the thing in life that you are most thankful for? It's interesting to contemplate that. I'm pretty thankful for my family, actually. But deep down, would, not, would it not be that we are most thankful for forgiveness? 
if we are people who rightly understand God and rightly understand ourselves, to think that our Creator, the unfathomable, uncontainable God of the universe, whom we have offended, whom we have wronged, would deign to, uh, to wipe out our sin uh, th- through, for no other reason than that he, his love endures forever. I mean, that's, that's glorious, isn't it? That is, the, that is the glory of glories, that God should be a forgiving and merciful God. Now, I've heard of churches where, um, where they claim that God's glory is seen today in that God physically fills the buildings in which they meet. Um, you may have heard of this. Uh, for example, during their services, gold dust and diamonds fill the air and they, they drop down onto people's hands and people's laps. Um, or um, uh, new gold dental work suddenly appears in people's mouths. So come to their church and check it out. You can <coughs> watch the videos on YouTube. Now, this may surprise you, but I'm a bit sceptical of that. Um, uh, I mean, it would be interesting to test those claims, uh, but even if it is happening to wonder where it's, what the origin of that is, because it's hard to see how that's biblical, because the glory of God filling Solomon's temple does not point us to God somehow filling another building in the 21st century in Australia. The glory of God filling Solomon's temple actually points us to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the focal point. Uh, With the coming of Jesus there was a, an outbreak of, uh, of um, physical manifestations of God's glory shining. So think, for example, of the, uh, the announcement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds by the angels where the glory of the Lord shone around uh, or the, the transfiguration or the ascension of Jesus to heaven uh, in the cloud. We're going to go over to the New Testament. Would you come with me to John's Gospel for a moment? Uh, To John chapter 1. And I want to read from the prologue of John's Gospel, the opening of it, just a few verses. In John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Just give you a moment to flip that open. I've got that. John 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. 
Come with me down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, of course, is Jesus. God the Son, whom John says here, made his dwelling amongst us. His dwelling place. Amongst sinful and broken humanity, as one of us who we could see, we could touch, we could feel, we could, as John says, we could see his glory. We have seen his glory. Now, what does John mean by that he's seen his glory? Well, John was one of the witnesses to the transfiguration, uh, that uh, astonishing moment when the, the face of Jesus shone like the sun, where his closed, clothes, clothes dazzlingly, were dazzlingly white when he was flanked by, miraculously by Moses and from Elijah, the great prophets, men of the Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's hard to beat that experience, isn't it? The glory of the Lord. But there is more to Jesus' glory because later on in, in John chapter 13 when uh, Judas Iscariot went out of the upper room and into the darkness of his deed, Jesus declared to the remaining disciples, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. That is that the glory of God would be seen in his impending death. The death of God the Son. Now, to many people, the cross of Jesus seems pathetic. That's like being knocked out of the World Cup in the first round. That's, the death of Jesus on the cross, that is a humiliating defeat. When in, the, in, the, in actual fact, it is the expression of God's glory. For in Jesus we see the actual presence of God. God become man. He is God. But in Jesus we also see the unparalleled character of God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. How glorious is that? How glorious is it that he would... The great God of the universe would humble himself and become a man and go unto to death on a cross because of his love which knows no bounds. How glorious is that? Now, this is an issue which was addressed by the Apostle Paul. Last piece of Bible flipping today, folks. If you can turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for a moment uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 we're going to just look at pick out a couple of verses here uh, because of time verse 4 give me a moment to look that up 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory, gospel of the glory of Christ, 
who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, here, Paul is uh, concerned in Corinth with people who are wrongly teaching a way to connect with God which depends on human effort, that we can somehow make up for our sins by, uh, by our own goodness and by obedience to the law of Moses, when what we need is the grace of God which is his glory and is found in Christ. It makes perfect sense that, God, that Paul would describe the gospel as actually being the glory of Christ. That in his unending love, that he died for us, that he rose again, and that he is now seated in glory in heaven. From where, by the way, he has sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. So that God, by his Spirit, has now made us his temple. Now, we may not look particularly flash, um, unlike Solomon's beautiful temple. And in fact, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes us as being, uh, being like jars of clay. You know, we're not the fancy crockery that you'd bring out when you've got you know, good guests coming along. We're the ordinary vessels, if you like. But we contain within us, we carry the glory of Christ. Because... When we share the gospel with people, what are we doing? We are shining forth the glory of God in what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Um, so that uh, Paul is able to say that the glory of... As people are hearing the gospel and people are uh, turning to Christ, that God's glory is being spread throughout the world. And more than that, by our lives, we display the presence of God. Now, just go back to chapter 3, verse 17 of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 3, verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, a few years back, uh, an old friend of mine who I hadn't seen for a very, very, very long time uh, turned up here in church with his, with his family, and it was, it was really good uh, catching up with this guy, uh, having not seen him for decades. And I was able to tell him over morning tea that Sunday 
that when I first met him in 1979, that I could see God in him. Now, not because his face shined or anything strange like that, but because of the quality of his character, which caused me, as a non-Christian, to start thinking and to start asking some serious questions about the God who I knew that he loved. And then uh, being joyfully, and I would say quietly euphoric, to discover the glory of God in the gospel of Christ. Now this shows us how important the fruit of the Spirit is in our lives, doesn't it? Um, the fruit of, of love and joy and peace and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, the, the character of God that Solomon, that gave Solomon confidence to come to God in prayer and to seek forgiveness. Our temptation as Christians is to stagnate, to come to a point in our Christian lives where we are comfortable and we... Uh, we stop moving forward in terms of changing who we are, uh, seriously grappling with the Bible and, and, and thinking through and praying through and acting on the areas in our character that are not reflecting the, the glory of Christ. The Christian life is dynamic. We need to keep on repenting so that we are increasingly transformed to not be the people who we once were, but transformed into the likeness of Christ. And to do so in increasing measure so that God's glory is increasingly seen in us. That's how God's glory shines through us. Now, uh, Germany's World Cup glory didn't last long, did they? Did it? Um, humiliated on Wednesday when they were, as world champions, knocked out in the first round. 2-0, which is a huge score in soccer. 2-0. Who by? By South Korea. Yeah, a little, little cheer up the back there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, good on you, Cindy. <laughs> now, worldly, worldly glory, as great as it is, is just like that. It's passes. But the, the glory of God, just like his love, endures forever. So we need to display that glory as we worship the glory of Christ and look forward to the glory that awaits us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, just how great you are and how personal you are, that you uh, reveal yourself, you manifest yourself amongst uh, your people. And we thank you uh, in ways that words can't express for your in incredible glory in Christ Jesus.
uh, in who he is and in what he's done for us and the forgiveness that we can confidently uh, receive uh, because of his work. We pray, Father God, that we would be men and women who would be ever increasingly changing to become more like Jesus, uh, to display your glory uh, in our lives to a world uh, which needs to see something of substance, something which lasts, something which is real, uh, something which they can pin their lives on as they turn to Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.